soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Welcome to Horse Sense 101 where we talk about everything related to horses and the world of horses. Hoping to help you have the meaningful relationship with your horse you always dreamed of and for them to be a willing partner in all your adventures. We are here every Monday morning by 6 a.m. Mountain Time. Today we are discussing the plight of wild horses, the Mustangs. I am honored to have as my guest country music legend Lacey J. Dalton. Lacey, who is a longtime advocate for the Mustangs and has an extensive knowledge of their history and what might be done to secure the future of these magnificent animals. Welcome, I am Joe Jones, your host, longtime horseman, advocate of natural horsemanship, and owner of Joe Jones Performance Horses in Vail, Oregon. I want to introduce our weekly segment, Current Events in the World of Horses. The last two weeks saw the return of the National Finals Rodeo to Las Vegas, and quite a show it was. It truly was a family affair, shown by the neck and neck competition of the Wright boys, Stetson and Ryder. We are big fans and want to congratulate Stetson on getting his gold buckles for the all-around and saddle bronc riding championships. An amazing performance. Barrel racing became a historic event when following in her mother's saddle, Jordan Briggs became the world champion barrel racer. Congratulations to both Stetson and Ryder. Also, from Fort Worth, Texas, at the National Cutting Horse Association Futurity, congratulations to Mr. John Mitchell riding Janie Wood, marking a whopping 230 to win the finals and a check for over $243,000. I would also like to send out a get well soon to world champion bullfighter and rodeo clown Dusty Tuckness. Dusty got nailed by a bull, suffering a compound fracture of his left leg in the ninth round. After surgery, we heard he returned to the arena. Dusty's dad, and also a fellow rodeo clown, Timber Tuckness, has been a close friend of mine for many years. To Dusty, we send lots of love and prayers for a speedy recovery to get back into the arena as soon as possible. Before we begin our interview with Lacey, I would like to invite you to go to our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com, and sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. You will be able to see what is coming ahead on the show, exciting topics, special guests, and announcements of offers, webinars, and upcoming expos. Also, information on the upcoming release of our book, You and Your Heart Horse, and where you can get your copy. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101, and get your most pressing horse questions answered. My guest this week, uh, Ms. L Lacey J. Dalton, uh, a very accomplished and very famous uh, country music star and also a lover of horses like the rest of us. Uh, welcome to Horse Sense 101 and oh, I'm no, so, so happy to have you. It's so great you. to be here. What a, great, what a great time to be here. Well, you I, know, I, people will be home for the holidays and probably listening to your podcast and uh, you have so much wisdom. We had a long talk yesterday. <laughs> Joe and I talked for I don't know how long. I learned so much just in in the, in the in the bit of time that we had together yesterday. I'm and I'm anxious to do this podcast because I'm anxious to see what what new things I'm going to learn from Joe today. Oh, thank you. You're so kind. Um, 
Well, we we all know yeah, about I'm your. Being truthful. <laughs> we, we all we all know about your 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 music. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a fan from from my childhood. I, I I've always been a a Lacey J Dalton fan. Um, but I think a lot of our listeners probably might not know one of your other passions in in life, and that is the plight of our our mustangs, our our wild horses. Um, tell us a little bit about your your history, Ms. Dalton, about um, how you how you came to be involved with mustangs and, and with horses in general. Well, it's kind of a two pronged thing. Um, in about 1998, the BLM was uh, doing a big uh, horse adoption down in Las Vegas, and it hadn't been something they'd been doing very much or for very long at that time, as at least as I remember. I may be incorrect in that, but it was my memory that this was something new. And there were a lot of us entertainers in Las Vegas happened to be there playing, and the radio station, one of the guys at the radio station down there called us up and said, look, will you guys help us promote this? And we all said, yes, of course we will. You know, because I, there's hardly anybody, there are people who hate wild horses, but I'll bet you <coughs> over 80% of the people in the United States love the wild horses. And, and I think that's really evidenced by the 1971 uh, Wild Horses Act, which was, you know, a unanimous, unanimously passed in Congress. Little school kids um, all over the country. Uh, wild Horse Annie was a wild horse advocate out here in, in this, where I live. And she uh, was a school teacher, and she got all the school kids uh, to write letters to Congress, and they wrote more letters to Congress than any other issue except the Vietnam War. And in 1971, the Wild Horses and Burroughs Act was passed unanimously in Congress, and it gave the horses at that time 81 million acres of uh, the country that should be where the wild where the wild horse was supposed to be the prime uh, of wildlife, the most important wildlife. Well, that has been reduced. I think there's 51 million maybe now that there still the horses still have that hasn't been taken away. Um, a lot of it gets you know taken away, but by the time that we had a run in with a uh, a guy from Montana who I call Raisinhart. He was uh, head of the Appropriations Committee in Congress, and he wrote a, a little rider on the bottom of an appropriations bill, I think for Afghanistan, and uh, he eliminated most of the protections that the American people put on the wild horses in 1971. So now we're stuck with this problem, and in 1998, when I started to uh, work we all helped the BLM with that, you know, really publicized it, and they had a great sale, and they were really happy. And it made me feel wonderful. And I played a lot out in Las Vegas, and I played up in Reno, Nevada, in all the casinos, and I was out oftentimes in Reno 12 weeks a year. And I fell in love with, uh, I, first of all, I liked the, the people that I worked with, the stage crews were so great. And Reno is a kind of a well-kept secret. It was the biggest little city in the world. It was had all the, the accoutrement of a, a very wonderful big city, but it was really kind of a small town then. And um, 
I, at one point, my record company insisted I always had lived in California, in the mountains of California, though I was born in northeastern Pennsylvania. But uh, I had lived for most of my middle years in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. And I had a band there for many, many years through my whole career. And the last record company that I was with insisted that I move to Nashville. I never wanted to do that. Um, I, that was not something I wanted to do. It was something the record company insisted that I do. And so I moved back to Nashville, and I never thought that would be a good thing for me. And it turned out that I, I never spent, that was the eight longest years of my life that I spent in Nashville. It's, um, I was so homesick for the West. There's a part of my spirit that belongs in the West, and it's not comfortable anywhere else. And in the time that I had spent in Reno, I realized that there were wild horses here, and I made a friend, and we were up in her house in Virginia City one afternoon having tea right about sunset, and I heard this sound outside, and I said, Elaine, what am I hearing? And she said, oh, and she put her finger in there. I'll never forget. She put her finger in there, and she said, listen, there's horse coming. Later on, I wrote a poem about that. Uh, that started with those words. But I went out on the porch of her little Victorian house, which you can look over probably 12 counties from Virginia City. You can see all the way across uh, to Route 80. And I mean, it's you. they say you can see seven or 12 counties from there, and I believe it. It's just a long vista from the top of the mountain in Virginia City. And coming up the street were four little wild horses, a little band of wild horses walking right up the street on... East Street, which is not the main street of Virginia City, but Virginia City's tiny anyway. Um, and here these horses are just perfectly fine. We're walking out. I thought, you know, if these horses can be here and be wild and free, maybe I can too. And so I told my husband, I said, I can't be in Nashville. I can't be here anymore. This is not where I belong. I belong in the West. It's freer there. It's more open. People are more open-minded. They're more. They're, there's just something about the West that I, 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 my spirit is not happy unless I'm in the West. And I found out that he actually was missing the West too because he had grown up in Santa Cruz, California. That's where he'd been born. And so we moved back, but we couldn't afford. The prices, land prices here, you couldn't buy an outhouse on a postage stamp in the Santa Cruz Mountains for less than $450,000. I mean, the, the, it was just during a time when real estate prices were just through the roof, as they are now again. And so I said, well, why don't we look in Reno? Why don't we? I looked for three years, and I finally found a place that I wanted in up near Virginia City near the old town of Virginia City, up on, in the Virginia Range Mountains, where the arguably the largest contiguous herd of wild horses um, lives. And I decided that I was, I was going to move here, and it was a lot because of those wild horses that I came to live here, and I've been living here ever since. And as soon as I got here, I realized that these horses were in trouble. They're natural migration paths were being cut off by freeways that they couldn't cross and fences they couldn't get around. Their uh, environment was being encroached upon, you know, their habitat was being encroached upon by huge 
uh, industrial parks and housing developments and all sorts of things. They were kind of being hemmed in. And, and so that's what really, uh, I live, where I live, there, there's a road called Cartwright Road that runs down to the, uh, a road called 341 that goes from Virginia City down to Reno. And on the corner of that road, which is about, oh, an eighth of a mile from my where my ranch is, uh, I would every now and then see a wild horse that had been hit. There's a long straightaway. The road is a switchback road, 341, that was built for the railroad in the 1800s. And it is a, it's a very curvy switchback road, but there's a long straight stretch, which is really sort of right down in front of where I, my ranch is. And people, when they hit that stretch of road, they will hit 75, 80 miles an hour because you've got to go 45 or 50 on the switchback. And the tourists get frustrated, and people who live here get frustrated, and everybody hits that stretch of road and just floors it. Well, about every two or three months, I'd see a, a dead horse down at the corner of that road. And there was a beautiful bay stallion up here who had two white back feet and the most beautiful blood bay and beautiful black long mane and tail. He was magnificent. And he would bring his band through my ranch and there'd be 30 or 40 horses and all the new babies, I'd get to see them. They'd come back and forth across my land. And I really admired this horse and he threw beautiful babies. He was really a beautiful animal. And one morning I went down and found him dead there at the corner, and he had thrashed and thrashed before he died, and you could tell because the ground was all torn up. I don't know how long it took the uh, police officers to find him and put him out of his misery if they even did, if they were even able to do that. But he had been hit, and his legs were broken, and he was dead. And I said, that's the last time I'm going to drive down this road and see this. These horses need a place. They need a sanctuary. They need a place where they can be where they're not on the highway, a danger to themselves and to the people who live here. And that's when uh, I, with my friend Carolyn Cardinale, uh, she had been a, she was a tourism expert and she said two things to me. She said, well, the only way you're gonna save these horses is with tourism. And the only other way you're gonna save them is by forming a foundation. I said, a foundation? I have no idea how to form a foundation. She said, well, we're gonna get a lawyer and we're gonna start this foundation. So we did, we got a lawyer at uh, we put in the paperwork. Sadly, the lawyer we got did not do the paperwork correctly, and we kept waiting and waiting for our charitable, uh, you know, 501c3 designation, which allows you to, you know, collect money and do stuff for the horses legally. It wouldn't come, and it wouldn't come. We finally, in desperation, called the IRS, and there was a very kind IRS officer who said, your paperwork was filed incorrectly. I said, we were never notified of that. And he said, well, I'm not sure we do that. If it's not filed correctly, we just kind of <laughs> forget about it. And But he did not He did have a record of it. And he said, I see, here, you did file in, um, I, I can't remember, I think it was 2001. I, I believe we actually finally got it, it three years after we had actually filed, or we actually became, and I believe that was in 2003. And that's when Let Him Run Foundation actually became a, a you know, bona fide um, 
operation to raise money and raise awareness about the wild horses, and it was my intention to use the arts to do that. In other words, I could do shows, and we could promote the wild horses during those shows, and we could use the proceeds from those shows to support programs for the animals. And we were able to do a lot of wonderful stuff. We started a program uh, along with another organization up here called the Virginia Range Wildlife Protection Association, which is a homeowner's association where I live that also has this branch that cares about the wild horses. And uh, we were able to start a program in the Warm Springs Prison, which is still running today. We bought the first panels and some equipment for them to start uh, with the uh, inmates being able to interact with these animals and learn how to train them from good trainers. Uh, yeah, I and, believe that uh, program has been, been uh, <clears throat> there's been documentaries done on that program on all the nation, national networks. It's, it's really, it's a it's, phenomenal it's, program. It's, because we all we wanted to do was help these Virginia range horses, which always seem to fall through the the cracks with any kind of protections, because they are they fell uh, in a funny way. They they are managed by the state of Nevada. They are not managed by the federal government, like almost all other wild horses are, save for the ones on Indian reservations. Um, these. These horses are, and the state has neither the money nor the manpower nor the interest at all in managing these horses. But we started this program because we thought it would help, and we knew it would help the inmates, and we knew it would help the horses. The BLM found out about it, and the BLM then took over the program and began to fund it properly, and they have made a going uh, uh, concern with, with the program, and it is very successful even until today they're getting I, I think they got I heard not long ago they got 6,000 for a horse and that was several years ago I haven't kept my eye on it but I'm so glad that it's successful and I know what it does for those inmates it really changes lives horses uh, outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man and that's what all you old cowboys always say well and we say that because it's absolutely the truth and, and everyone that has a horse and smells horse hair, I, I promise we all know that. You know, I learned, I've learned so much from people who are actual ranching people, people who are on the land, who have dealt with the land for generations, and a great deal from some very infamous and really hated Mustangers. They were hated out here. Uh, the reason that uh, Wild Horse Annie um, decided to help the horses, what she, and I've always heard this, I don't know if this is true, but the legend is she was following one of the trucks that were hauling horses to slaughter and saw blood running out the back end of the truck where the horses were kept. And that was it for her. She just, she was a rancher and she would love the horses. And uh, it was a really amazing. When they wanted to, a few years back, I want to say it's about maybe eight, ten years ago, the, there was a movement to cut off all the water holes to the wild horses in Nevada and just have a few and that the horses might die out, you know, be, we'd be rid of this pestilence of the wild horses. And I remember talking to um, a rancher named Fallon, who was the, uh, uh, John Fallon, who was the um, head of public lands at that time. 
and I called him and I said, "Is what is going on? Is this?" He said, "Lacey, you have no idea how many of the big ranchers here have called me and are just as outraged as you are." That's something I think it's it's important to to point out. John Fallon's a dear friend of mine. Uh, in my younger years, I actually dated his youngest daughter. And, and I, I, you know, the the Fallon family are some of the, some of the best people. Um, Some of the, some of the most um, uh, amazing ranchers I know are are in, in Humboldt and and Story counties. And they're, they're just phenomenal individuals. And I know they get a bad rap because people think, well, the ranchers hate the wild horses. And it's just not true. It's not true. And, and I have not found that. I have found that the ones who do hate them really hate them. I've known friends who have actually lost their ranches because of the wild horses going on to the government land that they've leased. And the herd of 150 wild horses go on and eat all the grass in the spring that they've paid for their cattle to be on. And I actually have known a few who have actually gone out of business because of it. And they, But even today do not hate the wild horses. They hate the fact that they are not managed. They would call the BLM way ahead of time and say, these horses are coming my way. Can you please, if you're, and I, we always talk about BLM and people who aren't in this business and who don't, aren't involved with the wild horses don't know that that's the Bureau of Land Management. When we say BLM, we're talking about the Bureau of Land Management, which by government accountability's own office, it says it's the most poorly managed part of the U.S. government. And I got to say, that is some harsh criticism. You'd really have to put some effort into that, right? To be the worst government agency, you couldn't do that by accident. You'd have to set out and and actually have goals and procedures to, to accomplish that. Well, I don't even know if it's that. I think people just want their paychecks. You know, they would like their nice government jobs and their nice government, uh, uh, and there are some very, don't get me wrong, I've known some very, very solid, good BLM people, and they have been very helpful. Yeah, we certainly but, have those they, in Oregon. We have some people that manage the manage the wild horses here in Oregon that do a phenomenal job. There's a young lady that, that lives here in Vail, Oregon, that spends her whole summer on on horseback uh i mean she works her tail off in fact she's on vacation i wanted to get her on the program she's on vacation right now for three weeks um gosh i'm gonna have we need to know we need to know our heroes when you have her on um you know because these people are they're bucking the system because the system at blm is a great big bureaucratic pain in the rear end, slow-moving, miserable, governmental mess. And these people who work for the good of these animals and the good of the earth, the good of the land and the sustainability of the ranges, a lot of these people are very well-educated and very passionate and very good people, but they're bucking the system. Yes. They're, they're having to fight through miles of bureaucratic red tape and just stupidity. Really, they are. So these people, like this woman you're telling me about up there in Oregon, and I'm, this is you've made me happy in so many ways, talking with you yesterday and talking with you today, hearing you say this, because you're right down there on the boots on the ground, dealing with throwaway horses. 
throw away horses. Uh, a, a lot of places, you know, uh, I know in in Oregon and up in Washington and even here in Nevada, they refer to these horses, and if you'll forgive me, it's very unpleasant, but they call them shitters. That's what they're called. And they, and they, and they, you know, range rats. The American people, at least 80% of them, probably more, do not feel that way about the wild horses. And come on, guys, this is a democracy. Well, it's trying to be. I hope it can remain one. But the bottom line is, that's way more of us than don't like them. And probably the reason the people who don't like them, they probably have their reasons. We need to listen to those reasons. We need to respond to what's going on that makes these ranchers so bitter about the world. If you're going to lose your ranch because you've leased land inexpensively from the federal government to run your calves on, and they go out there in the spring and the, the, the grass is all gone, of course you're going to be bitter. And, and, and I you promise you, it's BLM not. Ask, yeah, it's not. A, it's not the BLM. That's the. I mean, it's not the wild horses that these that these men and women are are upset with. They're upset that their livelihood is being taken away because the government isn't managing the resource correctly. And and that's that's really the truth of it. Just so, and some of them, you know, actually just hate the horses because that's the symbol of what is their causing their uh, their pain and their and their loss of income those horses are a symbol of that you know it's it's the same way with mice I'm killing mice you can't have mice in your house I've tried every kind of safe trap you can imagine my son I mean I don't want to kill them they're God created these and the mice where I live look they are the, the cutest you could have them for a pet they have pink ears little pink noses you know, people from a, unless you've lived unless you've lived in in that part of northern Nevada, what what Miss Dalton's saying just doesn't make any sense. But I, I've lived there, and, and it is absolutely the truth. They the mice there are so much cuter than the ones here in in Oregon. Oh my gosh! Well, I don't know if cuteness should be a factor, but God made these creatures and made them so beautifully, and I hate poisoning them but sometimes I have to you cannot have them they, are, they carry disease and you cannot have them around and you know when you have hay and feed around for animals you're going to have them that's all there is to it unless you have some pretty darn rangy cats and up here our cats don't last long because the coyotes um, unless they're a really smart cat we have uh, some really smart coyotes and they will get your cats I think my cats from Nashville who we had coyotes in Nashville as well and other predators for the cats those cats evaded those animals fine we got up here and they were only two months and they were gone I guess it depends on how hungry those coyotes get well I I know I I lost my cats when I moved to Nevada what's that? I said I lost both of my cats when I moved to Nevada yeah the, the coyotes are very Wiley, they're, they're very, there are a lot of coyotes. I don't hate them. I don't hate any creature that God made. I, I don't, I don't hate any living thing. I don't hate them. I don't even hate rattlesnakes. I don't want them around my dogs. One of them cost me $12,000 a couple years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> bit my dog. My dog apparently bit its head and it bit him inside his giant, 
his head is as big as a concrete block, thank God. And so they, the rattlesnake bit him inside the mouth twice. And I thought, well, he's a goner. But the vet saved him, and but it cost me twelve thousand dollars. That was an expensive rattlesnake. Yeah, expensive rattlesnake. So it's it's really it's a <laughs> it's a it's a a question of management. Then would you agree? I you know absolutely. I'm sorry I digressed, but um, yes, it is a question of management and a question of compassionate management. The problem is animals can be managed, and they can be jockeyed into into. Uh, crate, you know, vehicles to take them to slaughter and they aren't fed in those vehicles and they aren't watered in those vehicles and they might cross three states and they might be very pregnant because that's how a lot of them get shipped and when a lot of them get shipped because they weigh more and they are worth more by the pound. They get shipped across, I know of at least three or four state lines before they go up to Montana, cross the border, and go to Bovary, Canada, where they are processed as meat. This is something, this is not compassionate. This is management. This is management, and mostly it's done by um, uh, people who work with Indian tribes up there, because that, you know, the Indians do not, they do not have the money nor the means to manage these animals. One of the... um, tribal leaders called me about 20 years ago and said, we need help. We have 20,000 horses on the reservation. We can't, we don't have the money to manage them. We can't even manage to round them up. We need help. And at that time, I suggested to him that, you know, they round up as many as they can a few at a time and, and ask the big organizations like Humane and ASPCA for help with some kind of fertility control. And then maybe they geld all the young stallions, or most of them, keep four or five that they think are fine, keep them separate from the mares so that they can't breed until they want to breed. Because some of those Indian horses from um, up in Washington and Oregon have they have some very nice big horses up there and very sturdy horses and beautiful horses. You have them where you live. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I actually, out on the ranch here, I, I have a I, I have a, a yearling from Washington from the Indian Reservation. I can't remember which reservation he's from, but he's really nice. They can be nice, and they have got some size on them. Our little Nevada horses down here um, in, in the old days, the Mustangers, who were, I believe, hired by the ranchers, or at least they helped the ranchers manage the wild horses. They would turn out uh, a, a big stallion, a big good quarter horse stallion, or a big thoroughbred stallion, or a big Appaloosa, whatever they wanted to introduce. They didn't, uh, they didn't shoot the, the other stallions that were with the herd. But because of the introduction of that other of those other bloodlines, we used to have some pretty big horses. And in the 50s, the army turned out draft horses up here. But we had big horses, but now they're, you know, they've stopped doing that. No one's doing that. No one's messing with the horses anymore. So it's natural selection, but they've become uh, about a 14 hand, generally about 14 hands, but very sturdy. And some of them have gorgeous confirmation because they've had... Uh, the luck of the draw, they've either had some good genetics from a good quarter horse or they just happened to be a beautifully made animal. 
So you, I'll bet your horse is beautiful as well, is he not? Yeah, no, he he looked he looks drafty. Um, you know, he has the he has the same look as the there's a a herd of wild horses in Idaho near Chalice uh, that are descendants. Of, there there used to be a a uh, tungsten mine in Chalice, and they mined it with draft horses. And of course, a lot of those draft horses escaped, and the Chalice Mustangs are descendants of those draft horses. Oh, so you've got a big horse up there. Yes, we 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 some of the some of the mustangs that come out of the central Idaho, you know, look like uh, they're the size of a gypsy banner. Wow. And and great big feet and feathers, just like just like a gypsy. Like those gypsy horses. Well, do you know? I remember when um, the Nez Perce first bred uh, the Appaloosa horse. It was a a different looking horse than before uh, the last stallions were turned out. I think the cavalry did it. Uh, um, because for a while, the Appaloosa horses, um, they had a period of, uh, of uh, having real big heads and real big feet. And then later on, the Nez Perce uh, went to, I, I believe they went to Afghanistan and found a very similar horse. I think it was called a Kyber horse. I can't remember. But they uh, interbred these finer-boned, smaller animals with the horse with the Appaloosas that they had to try to get back to what they had had originally. Because the Nez Perce were a very rich tribe because they bred the best war horses with the strongest feet and um, courage. They were sturdy, sturdy, strong horses. And other they traded with other tribes for these war horses with the, you know, very... The Appaloosa with the very, you know, uh, distinct, distinct uh, coloring that an Appaloosa horse has, with the white spots oftentimes on a, the rear end and a, and a roan-ish look. And a lot of them are now. I mean, some of those uh, Appaloosa horses are just exquisite looking. But I remember a long time. I remember when I was a kid. I used to think, I don't know if I that looks like my grandpa's workhorse. You know, sure. I don't know if that's what I want for a riding horse, but the size is is great, and then the the refinement has been beautiful. I guess the the Nez Perce are really getting a lot of money for their horses now. Again, they are. I have a I have a dear friend in Lakeview, California, that breeds uh, registered Appaloosa horses, and her horses are with color without the color are indistinguishable from the finest quarter horses you can you can see. Um, they're, they're just, wow. she's just done a phenomenal job. You know, we have, a, I have a very good friend named Sharon DiCarlo who has a magazine up here for, has had it for years, a horse magazine called Horse Tales. And she had the biggest Appaloosa farm here in this area in Nevada. And she had very fine looking horses. They're, uh, uh, and you know, I think all horses are beautiful. Even my grandfather's big old Roman nosed big-footed workhorses were beautiful to me. I loved them. It wasn't what I wanted for my riding horse, but they were great. For my grandfather actually logged for the railroad with horses. He would go in, in the old days and, you know, do logging and haul the logs out with horses. And that was, you know, of course, back in the probably 30s. Don't forget to check out and become a member of our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. 
Keep in contact with me on Instagram at Joe underscore Horse Sense 101 and go to our webpage www.horse-sense101.com. While you are there, sign up for our newsletter for information about upcoming shows, events, and information on the release of You and Your Heart Horse. And if you have a chance, I would appreciate it if you would give us a review on Podchaser. And so the, the, the horses are, regardless of, of you know their, their breeding, they have a purpose. And, and, and as you brought out, you know, our, our society are, here in the United States, we've, we've made a decision that the Mustangs are a symbol of, really, they're a symbol of America. And, and I don't think anyone really denies that. And, and I don't think there's very many people that deny their right to exist. But I, I, I would say they, they've done polls and it's 80 percent in the polls. So I would and I would expect it's more than that. I, 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 I would as well. People. I would as well. Um, so, you know, I, I guess going forward, what is the what is, in your opinion, the best long term solution? What can we do and and what can our listeners get behind? You know, if we're if we're going to encourage the government to do something about about the plight of these horses um i know you mentioned a little bit about uh uh birth control or 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 how how to manage the the size of these herds um what what is your opinion of do you think that's something that would be beneficial if it was if it was properly carried out well i'm going to tell you something this is how i'm going to tell you I didn't like using birth control myself, but I had to do it. I think if we are going to have any wild horses left and we have a compassionate but properly run birth control uh, system for these wild horses where they can be allowed to have a foal every three years and control the size of the herds that way, it's probably the only way we're going to have any left because the population is growing so quickly and there are simply their habitat is just simply being taken up by other industries by roads water holes and here in the west we're having a, a terrible drought and these horses are having a hard time surviving i don't know what they're doing for them down in las vegas i don't know how those animals are because it's really dry up here where we get snow and water and i you know i just know there are areas uh in the state where it's just so dry that these horses are going to have a hard time surviving so we i do think we need i don't think there are too many but i think there are getting there are too many for what is allotted for them and too many other pressures. I and I and in the best of all possible worlds, the horses would manage their own numbers, and which they do naturally in a closed area. Uh, if 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 they are in a, for instance, the Kyber horses, uh, if they are managed in a in an area that is sort of closed off, they kind of manage their own numbers, and that's scientific fact. But they don't do that out on the wide plains. And it seems like sometimes what these roundups do, 
they take all these horses with helicopters, which is the stupidest way to round a horse. I want you to speak to this because you, what I learned from the Mustangers about water trapping, you, you certainly uh, um, agreed with, and I would like you to tell your uh, listeners how you think wild horses should be properly rounded up. And I am in 100% agreement with what you have said yesterday, so please tell your listeners sure. what you told me yesterday. I was pleased to hear it because I hate the helicopter roundups. I've seen nightmares, babies with their feet worn off, and, and you know, had to be put down. Injuries, broken legs, stupidity is those helicopter roundups. <laughs> They're stupid. Well, for those, for those that don't know what we're talking about, one of the methodologies for rounding these horses up to, to place them for adoption is uh, the BLM hires helicopter services to go out and, and run these horses with helicopters into large traps. And, and sometimes they will run them for 15 or 20 miles. And, and as, as, as Lacey pointed out, that, that doesn't work very well for the babies. Um, common sense common sense just says right right and, and it's just it's just not it's not how you want to you wouldn't gather a rancher wouldn't gather his cows that way um they may they may send helicopters out and, and, and i've worked on ranches where there's helicopters used but the helicopters aren't used to move the cattle. The helicopters are used to find the cattle. And then we'd go on, on horses and we would quietly gather the cattle. Um, and, and the helicopters are used to find the strays. Now, that, that's, that's how ranchers use helicopters. That's not what the BLM does. The BLM doesn't use horses. They just, they just run these horses until they can't run anymore. Um, and, and, and it's just... A lot of them die, I expect. And it's just not, it's just not good management. The reality is, is that these wild horses need water, um, and and they don't really range very far from their water trough because they have to come get water every day, and they come get water at the same time every day. Now we know where they get their water, and we know when they get their water. In back in the old days, the people that were rounding these wild horses up would set up corrals at the water holes. And they would wait until the horses came into the water holes and they would just close the gate. And and then the horses are, instead of being in a million acre pasture, you know, they're in a in a corral the size of a football field. And then they can be properly sorted and managed and shipped um, off to the ranch to get started. In, in my youth, that's what uh, you know, my first cutting horse that I had was a horse that my father brought in off of the BLM. Um, he, he was, he was running off a public range. He was the descendant of a purebred Appaloosa stallion that, uh, uh, Mr. Albert Black had turned out with the band and, and he went on to be a national champion cutting horse in the Appaloosa association. So I, I know personally that these horses can be, uh, sanely and, and, and humanely gathered and used uh, to benefit society, they don't need to be rounded up and, and shipped off for meat. They they are just as good a horse, in many respects, properly managed as the horses you would find from your next door neighbor. They just need a little more patience in and and care in how they're uh, how they're domesticated and started. 
Um, but but to round them up with helicopters is just all things aside, it's dumb. It's not the most efficient way to do the job. Well, it costs a hundred thousand dollars to do it. And the strange thing is, um, the, the under uh, the last administration, um, the BLM released a management plan that called for the removal of like ninety thousand wild horses and burros from public uh, lands within the first five years. That plan would balloon the number of horses and, and burros warehouse, which is what we call in holding pens, some of which are very, very nice and some of which are awful. And they will cost the taxpayers, now listen to this, nearly a billion dollars in those first five years alone. That's That doesn't work. The public loves the horses. They'd probably be willing to put up that money. They probably... I mean, a billion dollars is a lot of money to keep a lot of horses. If you could keep them out on the range and control their numbers with compassionate and properly managed, because these contraceptives are an unnatural thing. And if you do them for six years in a row, that horse will never, it'll be sterile. And we all suspect that that's what the BLM would really like. That's a horrible thing to say, but it's probably the truth. You know, the horses are a big hassle for them. It takes a huge amount of their budget to try to manage these animals. I'm sure it's a pain in the side of a lot of the uh, top BLM officials, you know, because they've got to use this money to keep a lot of horses in holding pens. Now, I believe, I don't know if it's still, uh, this is a, a fact that I will have to look up, but I believe that after 10 years of age, that they can sell these horses off to slaughter now and um, that are in the holding pens. I don't, I don't believe in eating horses. You know, if you're a Christian and Christ is supposed to come back in riding a white horse, I'm not sure he would like you to think that that horse that he might be riding might be on somebody's dinner plate in Korea. Some people say that is the only way. We're very intelligent. Human beings are smarter than that. We may have to deal with a problem for a while, but if we can find a way to control the size of the herds, and that's what we need to do, and manage that properly, then we won't have all these excess horses that we think we need to send to Korea and other places for people to eat. Correct. Bottom, bottom line, horses are not an efficient use of resource as a as a food as, as an, a food animal horse god did not build horses to be a food animal it takes them far too long and far too much resource to get them to a to an age where they can be a, an efficient food source you know three or four years to get a horse to the to the size and age and and weight where they are economically usable for slaughter the amount of input required to get a horse to that point just doesn't make economic sense first and foremost as a as a society to eat horses is a horribly inefficient use of our resources you you could grow 10 or 15 pounds more of beef uh with this with the same input and beef really isn't that efficient of a food source you know goats and lambs are three or four times more efficient uh, ways of producing protein 
than than beef is. So, in my opinion, eating horses is just really it's really not a smart use of our dollars. And, and of course, I'm a horse lover, so I don't like the thought of them being slaughtered for food from an emotional standpoint. Uh, but you know, I, I think really if you want to hit people where it hurts is hit them in their pocketbook when we realize how much money it costs to eat horses it, it's just it's just not smart oh i also believe that having seen what particularly the mustangs have an affinity for somehow helping people with ptsd which is often people who've been uh, in combat situations. It's not always PTSD can come from abusive anything and, and horrible trauma of any kind. But um, a lot of our soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq are suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. The government actually has a program where they are working with domestic horses and they are finding that the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man just being around them. Um, the Indians used to say that the horses take our burdens, they carry our burdens. I used to think that meant that they carried their stuff from one campsite to another, or, you know, they carried the teepee poles and the whatever skins to do. I, that's what I thought my friends meant when they said that. That is not what they meant. What they meant was horses do something with people's emotions they somehow ground people and we don't understand how it works we just know that it does it's a miracle i believe that because horses have this ability to help kids who have never spoken a word they put these autistic kids or special needs kids on these horses and for the first time they may say a word or they may laugh or they may be able to do things that they weren't able to do before the interaction with an equine intelligence. And to me, this is a, a very amazing thing, and having seen it myself and watched it happen, um, it's a program that I, I really hope will, um, we are trying to um, uh, tell the, the uh, armed forces that um, we have found that these Mustangs even bond in a kind of different, quicker way than domesticated horses. And there's a use for them. That is one way that we can use these horses with programs like that. Horses are, I believe, a sacred animal and a gift from God. I really do believe that. And I believe we undervalue People who do not realize that the same spirit that animates them animates other creatures as well are not in touch with themselves, and they're not in touch with spirit, and that is a big problem in our country today. A lot of people simply have no belief that there's anything, a higher power of any kind, and that's not a good place to be, because then all you want to do is make as much money as you possibly can before you die. So that you can have stuff, because you think stuff's going to make you happy. I think when you lose, or you're never given the connection, you're never taught a connection, it's an innate thing. It's in everything that lives. And when you find that connection, 
that's when you're going to know what real peace and happiness is and not before not before and i think a lot of it's hard for a lot of people in our country because we think we only do this one time we think you know we die and we either go to heaven or hell i don't believe that i've never believed that i believe we come back here time after time i believe that the earth is a school we're supposed to learn the golden rule do unto any other living thing as you would have it be done unto you now i remember my mother when i say this i often say it at shows or on radio interviews my mother used to when she was killing a fly she'd take the fly swatter and she'd say go to jesus and get the fly uh, but um there you know i do think it's important i think there is there is a higher power what i don't know how you call it i don't know how you believe in it however you believe in it is better to believe in something that's bigger than yourself and to recognize that spirit in everything that lives. If you do that, when you do that, you become a whole part of this earth. You're not separate from it. You're not alone. You're part of everything that is. And when you realize that, and when you realize that the littlest thing you do is like dropping a pebble in a great big pond, and those waves from the littlest cruelty or good deed that you do, Go out and out and out and out. All through that vibration of that good or bad deed goes out through the spirit that connects us all. And I think when we can find a way, however you find that way, I suggest that you do it. Because you're going to be a more whole and confident person than you are all by yourself alone. Do you think maybe... The gift of the horse is, is this very thing that you're discussing, that one of the one of the things I think that we all that attracts us to these these majestic creatures is that it does put us in touch with these very things that you're talking about. I think I think and sometimes I think it's very unconscious. I don't think it needs to be. Um, I think it happens. It just, it's, it's something that happens. And for a lot of people with post-traumatic stress syndrome or autism or any kind, their brain injury, traumatic brain injury, this is a miracle. This feeling of connecting with another creature is a miracle. I had a story that was told to me. I don't know how your time is, Bill. It's a story um and i don't know how long your podcast uh how long we can talk do we have time for a story well i am I'm, I'm the uh i'm the boss of this here podcast so it can go as long <laughs> as it needs to go <laughs> it's a, it's really a function of how much time you have ma'am well then if you will indulge me with this story because the story was told to me by one of the facilitators at a ranch down in california who was working um, and he was working uh, with domestic horses in this space. Um, they were actually, he was working on a farm that raised Arab horses. And they had probably, oh, you know, 15 or 20 paddocks that opened up into a big pasture. And the facilitator asked the guy with PTSD, and this guy had been, he was, um, uh, in charge of making bombs in Afghanistan. 
and he had been a family man before. He'd been married for quite a long time. And when he came back from Afghanistan, he was so traumatized that he had sunglasses on and he would never take them off. And his marriage of many years was, was suffering, really suffering and falling apart. He was not capable of, of really participating in a whole way with, you know, with, with work or with even his own recovery. And the facilitator said, I want you to go out and I want you to sit. Now, these horses are all trained. They will not hurt you. He said, I want you to go out and sit in the middle of this large pasture. And he said, you're going to sit there for a while. And then one of these animals, not will always be this. I can't tell you which one it's going to be. One of these horses is going to come up and interact with you. And he said, don't touch the horse at first. You listen. You wait for me to tell you. And sure enough, an old mare that had been horribly abused, hurt and horribly abused, and this woman had rescued it. It wasn't one of her fine, you know, horses that she was showing. This was a horse she had compassion for. So old horse ambled up to the man, in the, this mare, in the middle of the pasture, and he was where he was sitting with his sunglasses on and his hat. And she put her nose down, and she began to smell him and sniff him. And the facilitator said, now, he said, you can touch, put your hand up on her cheek and on her neck. You can touch this horse now. And the man put his hand up, and he said, now you can you can just slowly stand up. And the man stood up. And he said, and now, he said, run your hands down her neck. The horse put her head on the man's shoulder. He put his arms around the horse's neck and wept and wept and wept. And when, and the horse, the horse walked away from him and shook like she was shaking off water. And, you know, she was wet and had drops to shake off. She went away from him and shook off water and then ambled away. And the facilitator went out and held the man. And the man took off his sunglasses and put them in his pocket. And he said, this is the work that I am going to do for the rest of my life. You need to train me to do this work. That is one of the stories that I was told by a facilitator down in California and I was so and then we learned later that the Mustangs which you know once they've been gentled and they're not afraid of people um, and they're not dangerous to people that they even are for some reason and I don't know why whether they have a, a higher fight, fight or flight instinct or um, a, somehow they even do it better than domestic horses do well, any, any of us that have ever been around a Mustang, the one thing that we all know is that they are far more sensitive than a domestic horse. I don't, I don't know if it's sensitive as much. Do you think it's more, might be more that they are just, uh, I think all horses are very sensitive. But I think that um, the wild ones, uh, they have an awareness. They seem to bond more deeply when they trust you. That you're you're exactly right. They when when you find when they finally do their when they finally decide, okay, you're a member of my herd. Um, 
it, it, it goes really, really deep because they are so wary to begin with. When they let you in their circle, um, you're really in. And it's strange that they would let such damaged people in, I think, almost quicker than someone who isn't. Sure. It's the same way with kids, the same way with children. I think when they sense that vulnerability in a predator, somehow that, I don't know, I really don't know how this works. This, to me, it's kind of like magic. And that is why I, I am not, I am not a proponent of slaughter of horses. Well, the fact that I, it works is enough, uh, right? Just, just the, that? just the fact that it works is enough to know. It's all I know. It's all I know, and I don't think any of us yet can tell you why. And we probably Except don't need to know why. <laughs> if it works, you know, you don't need to fix it, right? Right. But I do think you're right. I think it's about a certain connection on a on a level that can only be called it could, might be called emotional, but I believe it's deeper than that. I believe it's on a spiritual connection of this spirit is connecting with my spirit. This soul is connecting with my soul. Some of these men have probably never felt that in their lives. They might have come from barrios, and they might have come from, you know, a lot of the, the guys uh, are, do come from way disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods and places in cities, you know, ghettos and barrios and places way out in the sticks, you know, that are, that are going to, the United States uh, um, Army and Navy and Air Force and, and, and Coast Guard to get educations, to better themselves. And maybe they've come from a horribly abusive background in the first place, but when they come back from combat, they're not the same. And we have found that one of the ways, and, and we've also found this with inmates in prisons, that it is tremendously helpful. For the, I wish they, I used to call them once in a while and ask them how the recidivism rate was with these guys that have worked with the horses. And they don't keep records of it. And I suggested to them over and over, I said, briefly, please keep some records of this. We need to know how many guys go back to a life of crime after they've worked for, I don't know, three or four, five or six or seven years with these animals. We need to know what that does. Because once we know what that does, if we know it's successful, then we know we should expand these programs, have more room for the horses, more uh, activity uh, programs for the men uh, and women in these institutions, rather than warehousing people and warehousing horses and spending a lot of money. Um, you know, there are, there are ways that we can use the resources, the tremendous resources we have of this great country in ways that build back better. That's what we need to do. We need to use the resources in ways that are smart and stop throwing money at problems that, and doing stupid things like rounding horses up and keeping them in holding pens forever and ever. And I wish they were forever and ever, but I do think after 10 years, those horses, if, and they say that a 10-year-old horse can't be trained, well, you are a horseman. I want you to speak to that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there's people will say all kinds of strange things, but um, I, I actually have a 15-year-old gelding here 
uh, on the ranch. Uh, we call him Shorty. And Shorty had never been even haltered when we got him last summer. Um, and Shorty's now broke to ride. So for those that say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, um, I guess bring me your dog um, and, and I'll show you how to teach him a new trick. Um, I, I think you have to use common sense when you, you know, you, you may have to adjust your methods for an older horse, but, but there's certainly, there's certainly no time when they can't be trained. They're, they're, they're God's creatures and they're, they're so special and so, so intelligent. Um, and there's just so much to love about horses that, uh, you know, gosh, I'm with you, Lacey. I, I don't think we need to be eating them. I, I just don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. Well, at least when the, I, I often think, I haven't been up to see, uh, they tell me that they use a 22 to kill the horses in up in Canada for before they ship them and process them. Um, to me, though that's probably very quick and over with very quickly, the blood, the smell of the blood with these sensitive animals and the sound of those guns has got to be terrifying, particularly for the ones, I don't know if you've ever worked with a horse that's been rounded up by a helicopter, but some of them are so traumatized that when a, when a helicopter comes over, they actually get, almost get down on their knees, they're shaking. You know, that's why, you know, we're like, it's, it's, it's as though we're, that's the brute method. We are not brutes. We want to be, but we know better. I don't think we need to learn a whole lot more than what we were taught about the golden rule. <laughs> Do unto others as you would have it done unto you. You know, really, I don't think we need to learn that, but I do think we need to be reminded of it. And a lot of the songs that I'm writing now kind of speak to that. And a lot of them are really fun, too. But, uh, you know, the thing is, you know, when I have something to say like that, um, I want to be able to say it very clearly. I want to be, you know, um, call me left wing, call me right we are split right down the middle in this fight. Divided we fall. That rule won't change. That's just the devil by a different name, boys. The devil by a different name. That's the verse in one of my songs. And I, I, I approach every divisive issue in that song that I can by pointing out that, you know, we need in America to start reach, building bridges with, with the red and the blue. We need to build bridges, not walls, between us. That's coming, that is deliberately coming from a couple of sources in Russia to the internet. Things that will divide us. That is why we cannot permit ourselves to not talk to people we disagree with. And that is why your political party is not your football team. Get over it. <laughs> that is they so, that is so important. You. They don't give a crap about you. We give a crap about each other. Americans love each other. And we need to forget all this divisiveness. It's stupid. We're going to be one side or the other, but we got to learn to listen to the other guy. Listen. Hear what their concerns are. Meet him in the middle. Don't put up a wall and not speak. That's crazy. Meet him in the middle. Meet him in the middle. We have to learn to do that. 
or we're going to lose our country. And this is too great a country to lose. Well, Lacey, it has been such an honor to visit with you this afternoon. I, I am so I am so honored that you would you would take the time to visit with me, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about what you're doing right now. Or you, you're you're recording music now. I'm still writing. Um, that, that that verse that I just told you is from a song called the the Devil by a Different Name, and it is the first song. Actually, it's the second song that um, I've written for a project called For the Black Sheep that and it um it's a it is um a project that has um everything that i'm able to share that i've learned i've had a lot of challenges in my life and you know i'm not i'm not i don't have cancer that i know of i'm not in a wheelchair i've not lost a child i've not walked in the in the in the boots of people who are being targeted because of their color or their or their sexual preference or any of that stuff we got to get over that stuff we are all spirits on this world we are all here to learn how to get along and we're not doing a very good job of it you know we i have a, a song called jesus was an outlaw after all and he was he was a criminal and he was an outlaw but he was who he was and I always say, you know, my very favorite um, renegade and <laughs> outlaw and revolutionary, gone a very long time now. But he left behind some really great advice. And I've tried to live my life by it. And what he said was, love God with all your heart, mind, and spirit. Love yourself. And that's the hardest part. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, that is the whole of the law. And all the other laws of life are built upon that law. And that is what I came to teach. That is the whole of the law. That's it. That's what I came to teach. So, you know, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And that is a lot of the message of, uh, of this, the things that I am writing. You know, we call ourselves Christians, and yet we want to divide we want to make fun we want to feel better than we want to feel different than no wrong this is a little tiny planet we're all neighbors get over it well Lacey, it's been it's been as i said it's been an honor um you do such wonderful work and, and we we so appreciate you and uh thank you thank you so much for for making this time what a great interview i am sure you learned a lot i know i did i want to thank Lacey j dalton again for taking Time to join me to discuss the wild horses and their future. And thanks for joining me. Don't forget to check out and become a member of our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. Keep in contact with me on Instagram at Joe underscore Horse Sense 101. And go to our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter for upcoming shows, future events, and information on the release of You and Your Heart Horse. And again, please leave us a review on Podchaser. Join us next week for truly a truly exciting guest, Road to the Horse World Champion of Colt Starting, Mr. Wade the Professor Black. We will be talking about Road to the Horse, his college program, 
and the amazing nonprofit organization Training Quality Assurance. Thanks again for joining us. Happy horsing around. The eagle soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Let them run Let you brand them, don't you break them, don't you let the killers take a single one, let them run. In a world where fences scar the earth, from sun to rising sun, there's still a few proud places.